If you're looking for a place where the wide open skies and the towering mountains inspire you to find an untapped part of yourself, you might want to take a trip to Wyoming. It's a place where bold, curious spirits forge their own way on all types of adventures. There is no shortage of iconic, expansive landscapes out there. You can discover breathtaking hikes, stunning state parks, authentic Western culture, and other historic sites, along with the tales of famous outlaws like Butch Cassidy and pioneers like Buffalo Bill Cody. The truth lies West. Discover yours at TravelWyoming.com. Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Today, the channel is a winter wonderland. First, we have Cooking with Jonathan, all about Iran's ancient ice cream. Yum. That's followed by a special documentary on Vermont's one and only Snowflake Man. Who is it? Well, stay tuned and find out. Well, hello, hello, everyone. (laughs) Thank you all so much. You all are too kind. Welcome to Cooking with Jonathan. This audience sure does look hungry today, are we? (laughs) All right. Well, on today's menu, we've got a special dessert with a rich, rich history. Today, we're going to be making faluda. It's an ancient Persian dessert perfected over thousands of years one that's been passed down through the generations. Now, what is faluda, you may all ask? Well, it's a cold, semi-frozen treat that kind of resembles a sorbet. I mean, these days you can find faluda in India, Bangladesh, Pakistan, Sri Lanka, and Iraq. But it's most associated with Iran because, well, Iran is where faluda originated. And today, we're going to use... That same recipe that dates back to the ancient roots of Faluda. So, everyone, just take a second for me. Everybody, close your eyes. Just one second. And imagine it's the year 400 BCE. We're in Iran. And we're in the middle of this desert region. And when the summer comes around, it is sweltering. And we're all in need of some desperate, desperate relief. Luckily... We all have the ingredients we need to beat the heat with a cold dish of faluda, all gathered from the local market, of course. So we have our rice noodles, syrup, and rose water, and we're gonna toss in a little bit of lime juice just to kick things up a notch. We have everything we need, except the most important ingredient in this dish, the most essential, ice. But remember, ladies and gentlemen, It is the year 400 BCE, and we are in the middle of the desert. So, how do we get ice in the middle of the desert? Well, my friends, 
This is where our yakchul comes in handy. A yakchul is a massive structure that was sometimes as high as 60 feet tall that was built not only to store ice, but to create it. Sort of resembles a giant beehive. <laughs> and this incredible structure was invented by local Iranian and Persian engineers around 400 BCE. The word yakchul itself actually means ice pit. But how did they work? Now, please bear with me, audience. I'm not as savvy with the technical jargon as our engineers over there, but I'll do my best to explain this unique ancient technology to you all. So, let's start with water. Gotta have water to make ice, right? Here we are in the Yaz province of Iran, which is extremely hot, dry climate, where annual rainfall can only amount to around two inches a year. So get this, engineers in the region built these massive underground aqueducts known as kanats, which basically redirected water from the mountainous regions, often flowing directly into the pits underneath the yakchuls. The yakchuls themselves made of a special mortar known as saruj, which is basically a mixture of clay, egg whites, lime, and goat hair. Saruj was super strong and water resistant. I mean, engineers even used it to build some bridges back in the day. For yakchuls, it was used to build basically a towering cone-like structure with walls around two meters thick. These thick walls insulated the inside of the yakchul against the outdoor desert heat. Okay, now for the more technical stuff. You see, the reasons why yakchuls were built in these cone shapes with a tapering up to a point was to channel heat upward and out of the opening of the top of the cone. There were also these small holes near the base that allowed cool air to flow inside. So essentially, a yakchul used the desert's low humidity and rapid evaporation of water to their advantage. I mean, the engineers are ingenious and the airflow kept the structure cooler inside than out. And during colder months, the temperature in the desert can get below freezing which means ice can actually be made in a yakchul from the mountain water that was channeled through the aqueducts. But some of the ice was stored in the yakchuls that also came from nearby mountains, typically harvested during the winter. The insulated yakchul made it possible for ice to be enjoyed year round, even during these hot, dry summer months. And that means we can all beat the heat with some delicious, delicious faluda. Okay, enough of the history. Who's out there ready for dessert? All right, all right, all right, calm down. All right, let's mix our ice together with our ingredients first. So we're gonna spice things up a little bit with this ancient treat with some modern variations. Let's throw in a little bit of saffron and pistachios over here and a little bit of chocolate syrup. Top it right off there, there we go. Now. If you, like me, and you indulge, you may make a batch a bit too much and you can't finish all of your faluda. Well, don't worry. You can just pop it into your yakchul that's plugged into your kitchen. <laughs> that's right. Yakchul is now a common term used for the modern refrigerator in Iran, Afghanistan, and Tajikistan. If you're a traveler and you want to store your extra faluda in a real ancient yakchul, you can travel to Maybad, Iran where you can see an actual yakchul made out of shirouge, constructed around the 17th century. All right, ladies and gentlemen, 
that is all the time that we have today. I want to thank you all so much for joining me cooking this ancient dessert. And I will see you next time on Cooking with Jonathan. cooking with Jonathan as much as I did. I can't wait to see what you make next, Jonathan. Next, keeping with our ice theme, we are headed from Iran to Vermont to share a touching short documentary from Michelle Cassidy, which asks, who was Wilson Snowflake Bentley? Over to you, Michelle. You've heard that no two snowflakes are the same, right? It's one of those things that I've heard all of my life, but I never knew if it was actually true. It kind of feels unknowable and maybe impossible. You're telling me that out of trillions of snowflakes that fall every year, a few of them don't have the same patterns? As it turns out, The idea that no two snowflakes are exactly the same isn't some ancient bit of wisdom. It's actually a pretty new idea that was first proposed a little over a century ago by Wilson Bentley, a self-taught meteorologist from Vermont. Working out of the back room of his family farmhouse, Bentley totally upended the way that we think about snow. Few things are quite as transformative as fresh snow. With a thick blanket of white, the world's details and imperfections are hidden. Everything sounds a little quieter. Take a breath in and you can feel that cold air filling your chest. The snow crunches under your feet and the landscape changes just a little bit with every single step. Growing up in Jericho, Vermont, Wilson Bentley became quite familiar with the power of fresh snow. Jericho is located in a snowbelt where the average annual snowfall clocks in about 100 inches. For context, that's about four times the U.S. average. Always from the very beginning, it was snowflakes that fascinated me most. The farm folks up in this north country dread the winter. But I was supremely happy from the day of the first snowfall, which usually came in November, until the last one, which sometimes came as late as May. In 1880, when Bentley was about 15 years old, his mother gave him a microscope. That gift would change his life. He used it to get a closer look at all of the things that fascinated him. Dewdrops, tiny bits of stone, bird feathers, flower petals... And, of course, he got a closer look at the snowflakes that he loved so much. Under the microscope, I found that every snow crystal is a miracle of God's beauty. It seems a shame that this wonder can't be appreciated by others. Every flake is a masterpiece of design by the Creator, and no single design has ever been repeated. In the winter, Bentley would sit outside, capturing individual snowflakes, then bringing them to the microscope to observe their delicate structures. He tried to draw what he saw through the lens, but was disappointed with his ability to recreate the intricate crystal structures on paper. 
even after hundreds and hundreds of attempts. Two years into his studies, Bentley learned about a way to take photographs through a microscope. His father agreed to spend $100 on a camera, despite being pretty skeptical about his son's obsession with the winter weather. Now you have to remember, this was the 1880s. Photography in general was still a pretty new technology, though by that point, cameras were just starting to become more accessible. As a teenager in rural Vermont, Bentley had very little exposure to photography, but he wasn't going to let his inexperience deter him. He set up a camera in the back room of the farmhouse, connected it to his microscope, and started gathering snowflakes. Unsurprisingly, they were difficult subjects. They're tiny, and they often fall in clumps, making it pretty difficult to capture a single one. Bentley found that he had to take great care with the individual crystals because of how easily they could be crushed or melted or blown away. Even working in below freezing temperatures, he found that breathing too closely to the samples was enough to melt them. And even when he did manage to avoid touching or breathing on his specimens, an isolated snowflake can only last for a few minutes before it evaporates into the air. Slowly but surely, Bentley worked out a method. He would stand outside with a small piece of blackboard and watch the snow as it fell. Once he had samples he was pleased with, he would transfer them to microscope slides using a piece of straw and a chicken feather. When he did manage to capture photographs, Bentley quickly realized that the transparent ice structures were barely visible on film. He faced a new challenge, which was developing a processing technique that would ensure their crystalline structures actually showed up on the camera. It took him a year of trial and error, but on January 15, 1885, Bentley finally succeeded in making the image that he had set out to capture. The day that I developed the first negative made by this method and found it good, I felt almost like falling on my knees beside that apparatus and worshipping it. It was the greatest moment of my life. At just shy of 20 years old, he had become the first person to capture a clear photograph of an individual snowflake. And that photograph would be the first of many. Over the next 40 years, Wilson Bentley made more than 5,000 photographs of snowflakes. You've probably seen some of them before, even if you didn't know they were his. Most of them feature a single snowflake sitting on a circular black background, a simple design for an immensely complex subject. It's easy to get lost in his photographs. Some of the snowflakes are flawless, perfectly symmetrical and ornate. Others have tiny imperfections, charming scars that they've gathered from their journey through the clouds. They come in all kinds of shapes, the iconic six-pointed dendrite, but also flat-sided hexagons and triangles. Some look like dainty little flowers or a doily that you might find in your grandma's house. While Bentley was making these photographs, he also kept detailed records of the weather conditions that led to the different shapes. He eventually became friends with George Henry Perkins, a professor from the University of Vermont, who convinced Bentley that he should share his work more widely. In 1898, Bentley and Perkins co-wrote an article for Popular Scientific Monthly. Soon, Bentley was traveling the country, sharing his work and publishing articles in magazines like National Geographic and Popular Mechanics. 
He became affectionately known as Snowflake Bentley. And every winter, he returned to the farmhouse in northern Vermont, where he would make more photographs using the same camera that he started with as a teenager. In 1931, Bentley published his life's work in a book called Snow Crystals, which includes more than 2,500 of his images. Sadly, Bentley died later that year, after catching pneumonia from staying outside in a blizzard. When a snowflake melts, that unique design is forever lost, without leaving any record of its beautiful existence. Today, you can find Bentley's work in a number of places. His original glass plate photo micrographs are held at the Buffalo Museum of Science, and large collections of his photographs remain in the Smithsonian and in his hometown of Jericho. At the Jericho Historical Society, you can see Bentley's original photo microscope set up on the same makeshift table that he used for decades to capture these thousands of small fleeting pieces of wonder. Thank you to Michelle Cassidy and Jonathan Carey for these really amazing stories. Michelle and Jonathan are the editors of The Places Team. Every day, they are reading, editing, adding a whole slew of new place entries to Atlas Obscura. And here on the podcast, Jonathan and Michelle share just a few of the entries they've added. If you're curious to visit one of those places or want to learn more about all the other great places in Atlas Obscura, go to the site, atlasobscura.com. There is also a link in the show notes. Thanks for listening to this very special episode of Obscura TV. I will see you next time. Our podcast is a co-production of Atlas Obscura and Witness Docs. The production team includes... Doug Baldinger, Chris Naka, Camille Stanley, Willis Ryder Arnold, Sarah Wyman, Manolo Morales, Baudelaire, Gianna Palmer, Tracy Samuelson, John Delore, Casey Holford, Luce Fleming. Witness Docs from Stitcher. The world isn't wide enough for those with an insatiable desire for discovery. The all-new 2024 Lincoln Nautilus Hybrid SUV offers the power and freedom to explore further and deeper than ever before. Intuitive, smart features ensure that you're always connected to the road ahead. Inside, a thoughtfully designed cabin immerses you in a universe that is all your own. The larger-than-life panoramic display spans the entire width of the cabin. It's customizable and interactive. Drivers can even personalize their backgrounds with a series of nature-inspired themes. This vehicle signals the arrival of an exciting new chapter for Lincoln. Discover more about the 2024 Lincoln Nautilus at Lincoln.com. Hi, I'm Willa Paskin, the host of Dakota Ring, Slate's podcast about cracking cultural mysteries. On Dakota Ring, we dive down rabbit holes and obsessively explore questions hiding in plain sight. Like, why has slow dancing gone out of style? And when did we all become obsessed with hydration? And where did the word mullet, you know, to describe a hairstyle, come from? 
That's Decodering, named one of the best podcasts of 2023 by the New York Times. Listen to new episodes every two weeks and make sure to follow us so you never miss one.